There's my title for today. Making Connections. I rather like that little logo because all the letters are different, aren't they? There's no sort of regularity about the font. We're all different. Not better, not worse. Just different. And I also spoke on this subject back in June of 2011. So if your memory is so good that you remember that sermon, I apologise for the elements that are going to be repeated. But since I had to check my notes to be sure, I'd be very impressed if you remember. Making connections. Now, I've had a few linguistic excursions from this front of this meeting over the years, and Richard often enhances our knowledge with Greek and other things. I'd like to take you back to the excursion I gave you into the Icelandic language back those few years ago. I'm not going to ask you to try and pronounce that, because I don't think there are any Icelandic scholars amongst us, and with only 300,000-odd inhabitants of that country, it's not a particularly useful language. Unless you're Icelandic, of course, in which case it's very useful. So what we're going to do is, we're going to uh, just have a little look at a practical mechanism whereby we might be able to say this word. This little will just enable me to see. It's a litmus test as to how cooperative you might be in the workshop I plan for next Sunday. So. I'd like to split you down here. So just to the left of... Uh, um, uh, I was actually looking at the back there. Just, here, just in this direction here, okay? Sorry to separate a married couple, but I'm sure you'll be reunited later. Then you're, you're the next group here. And then uh, oh, the nice line just down here. So you're on that side, uh, Helena, and you're on this side, okay? So what we're going to do, we're going to do the, the, the verbal equivalent of the Mexican wave. So there'll be no waving of hands, but I want the group on this side to say that name. So would you like to add a Scandinavian intonation to it? So can we have Ivor? Very good. And then um, we're going to have a look at... I know you don't like Fiat motor cars, Richard, but for the sake of the exercise, perhaps you'd cooperate. Would you also say this name, but again with a rising intonation? Fiat, very good. Okay, a nice a dairy product. Blessed are the cheese makers. Um, yogurt. So, would you like to say that? A little bit more. Yogurt. That'll do. And finally, a nice manufacturer of solid wood furniture called Urkel. That's your job, Urkel. Very good. So, what we're going to do is, I'm going to count you in, and then on three, I want you to say it one after the other. So, you'll follow on from them, and then you from them. I sound like Nicholas Parsons on just a minute, don't I? And then you will follow on from them, okay? So, one, two, three. Very good. So, you can all now say in Icelandic, an Iceland mountain glacier. Is this a useful utterance? Well, no. But if you were to meet an Icelandic person, it would break the ice in the relationship. They would probably tell you how it should be pronounced, <laughs> or the volcano even. So why am I sharing this with you? If we can talk other people's language, it establishes trust. It builds a relationship, even if we can only say a little bit. And that doesn't just go for foreign languages. Increasingly, I find my grasp of the English language is challenged because people around me use expressions that I don't understand. Makes for interesting conversation. 
But if we can communicate with people, if we can find a way of breaking the ice and establishing a connection, then we stand a better chance of communicating. Now then, if you would turn to your Bibles to chapter verse, chapter, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Richard read this in a, in a previous sermon. I'd like to look at it again. So, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Here we go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't think anybody of us would disagree with that. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, for witnesses to have value, there must be somebody to whom the thing can be shared. If you're in a court, you share it with the courtroom. If you're in an inquiry, then you share it with those who are investigating. A witness with nobody to talk to is a slightly strange concept. So I did a little survey in 2011, and I asked three questions of uh, 43 members of this church, possibly some who weren't, some of you here now weren't then, and vice versa. I asked the question, I have somebody I could invite to a meeting right now. What do you reckon? I'll tell you that 16, oops, that was the second question. I might have somebody to invite in the future, and at the moment I really don't think of anyone I could invite. Straightforward questions, anonymous survey, and 16% of you said you've got somebody to invite. 40% had somebody you thought you might invite in the future. Uh, But 44% were honest enough to admit they didn't really have anybody they think they could invite. Now, I haven't conducted the survey again. I might do it at some stage, perhaps. But that tells me a bit of a story. You see, for us to be witnesses, we need to be alert and cultivating the opportunity where that can be the case. In my experience, people we become acquainted with Sorry, I can't manage that with glasses. They'll develop trust with us. Not spontaneously, but over time. And that, in turn, gives an opportunity, an avenue for us to share with them our relationship with God. Not necessarily that overtly, but it becomes apparent in the debate. (laughs) Now, I spoke at the very start here when I was just sharing personally about my situation about, I use the term vulnerability. Well, clearly what I'm talking about here involves a measure of that, doesn't it? Somebody here, whose judgment I respect and I love very dearly, said they have a slight reluctance to talk to people or to invite them to things because they fear being rejected when the person says no. I understand that. I experience that regularly. So it's not easy. But that difficulty can be reduced. I'm going to come back to that a little later. Now, I believe that everyone has the capability of belief in God. I don't make that from a deeply theological position. I just believe that everybody should have that opportunity and can take that opportunity if they so choose. Even the most hardened sceptic or atheist is not excluded from this. In the course of my researches, I found an interesting thing. You will have heard of Professor Richard Dawkins, yes? One of the most celebrated atheists there is. Well, he has devised a seven-point scale. At the top, 
there are people who know there is a God. No equivocation whatsoever. They're absolutely certain. I think most of us would be in that category. And at the position number seven are people who are absolutely certain they are not. They are the 100% atheists at the opposite end of the scale from the 100% believers. And there's graduations between. I'm not going to dwell upon it. You can look it up for yourself if you're interested. Professor Dawkins self-identifies himself as a number six. So that's somebody who's pretty sure there isn't a God, but he isn't ruling it out entirely. And when interviewed on a TV program, he went a bit further and said he was a 6.9. Well, hallelujah, point one is good enough for the grace of God. What am I trying to say to you in all of that? The capability of belief is not excluded from any mortal. It is not. Majority of people are not in the ardent atheistic category. I've met some ardent atheists and they impress me, to be frank to you. Their convictions are comparable with religious convictions. They believe as strongly that there isn't a God as I believe there is, and I respect them for it. It's a very bleak existence, really, but I respect them for it. But the majority of people are essentially agnostic, and this is something we have to remember. They're uncertain about the existence of God and the possibility of any relationship with him, but they don't want to rule out his existence either. And I'd like to share with you a little video. But um, a lot of people assume I'm an atheist and sort of draw no distinction between being an atheist and an agnostic. And there's a sort of, um, particularly among, you know, basically rational comedians like me, there's a lot of atheism going on. And uh, and I I don't accept the argument that atheism is the most rational response to the world as we see it. I think agnosticism is. And I also, uh, I, don't, I don't want there to be nothing. No. I'm not convinced there's no. something, but I, I do want there to be something. I want there to be an all-powerful, benevolent God. And I, I like that thought. And yeah. I was initially brought up with it, and now I'm not sure. Yeah. But I'm not ready to reject it. And I'm, not, and I, I'm suspicious of the disdain for people who find that a comfort in their lives and the sort of desperation among some atheists to tear that comfort away from them. Yeah. And the argument given for that is that religion has caused lots of killing and pain. Mm. And I dispute that because so much killing and pain was done in the name of, you know, communism or fascism. There's, humans have killed humans in the name of anything, Absolutely. whether it's religious or political or whatever. Humans just like to kill each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they'll use religion as an excuse, and they'll use politics as an excuse, and they'll use freedom as an excuse. But the idea that you take away one of the excuses that the killing will suddenly stop happening, I think, is absurd. Mm. What you take away is the comfort that a lot of people have as they face the possibility of oblivion. <laughs> You take away the comfort they have as they face the possibility of oblivion. <laughs> there you go. That is David Mitchell there. Not sure who his interviewer is, but there you go. Well-known comedian. Showing great candor there. And a lot of common sense, I'd say. I want to believe there's a benevolent, all-powerful God, but I'm not sure. I doubt I'll ever get to meet David Mitchell. I'd like to. I like the man. And I'd want to pursue that conversation with him. He self-identifies as an agnostic but he makes it very clear. He wants there to be a benevolent God. 
And the majority of people I meet are like that. They fear becoming identified as religious. The notion of commitment troubles them. But they'd like to believe as a benevolent God. And when uh, Fabrice Mwamba has a heart attack on the pitch, we see premiership players with shirts saying, pray for Mwamba. Lewis Hamilton is going to be in a Formula One race this afternoon, saying he's praying for Jules Bianchi, one of his fellow drivers who was injured. People don't want to feel if they need to call on God, they're confronting a vacuum. I think belief can be likened essentially to a pair of scales. Now, nowadays, when we have a thing with a battery in it and we put it on it and it gives a digital readout, we've lost this idea. But scales like this, and you'll see one of those in the hands of the dear lady above the courts in London. It displays the idea of balance. Can you see the needle in the middle there that's perpendicular to the balance arm and it sits inside a guide there? When the weights and the scales are equal, so a fixed mass on, fixed weight on one side and then a, a volume of something on the other, then you know what you've got. It aligns in the middle when the weights are equal. But if you've ever experimented with one of these devices, I thought about bringing one, but I don't want to dwell on that. There's a zone in the middle where the needle hovers about the midpoint. Kind of settles either, either side. I know if you're an engineer, you're going to tell me that's due to friction in the pivot. But just, just stick with me for the moment, just for the sake of the analogy. All right. Sorry? Were you? Perfect set of scales wouldn't do what I'm saying is what I'm trying to illustrate. But there isn't a perfect metaphor to be found. So there's a, there is a zone in the middle where people... A bit like David Mitchell, perhaps. They'd like to believe, but they're not sure. That's what we've got to be sensitive to, because it all boils down to sensitivity at the end of the day. Let's have a little think about this. So let's pop the scales up there and think about the things. If we imagine one pan is unbelief and the other pan is belief, let's think about what might be on each side. This is not exhaustive, but there could be a fear of the unknown. Life is very unpredictable and uncertain these days, and people are intrinsically fearful of the... Oh, they're fearful of the unknown. Totally understandable. And even a basic awareness of God can make any sort of personal belief seem threatening. There's also a lack of knowledge. People form their judgments on some crazy ideas. They believe that religion has caused more wars than anything else. No, it hasn't. There have been religious wars, yes. First and Second World War, which killed millions and millions of people, were not religiously motivated. There's prejudice and preconception. Now, knowledge alone is not sufficient to, uh, to, to deal with ignorance, and that's why we run things like the Discovery Course, where we give opportunity to unpack these things and people to ask questions in a relaxed environment. But lack of knowledge is a hindrance. People are trying to make a value judgment about whether they're going to believe or not, and they're doing it from a lack of knowledge. Poor experience. Well, sadly... Whether it's directly associated with the church or with individual Christians or just life generally, there is a colossal amount of suffering out there, isn't there? And it leaves people persuaded that either God doesn't exist or more probably that he's not relevant. I'm going to come back with another column in the moment, but just pick these things out. Conflict. 
But it might be the deliberate influence in the lives of somebody that works against the gospel. So they might be Muslim or something. They might have a belief system that directly conflicts with the gospel. Or it might be they're in an environment where belief is just simply thought not compatible. You know, they might be in a relationship which they know is something the church traditionally frowns upon, or they think the church would traditionally frown upon. Or they're in a job which they think would not be compatible. Or they don't think they fit or anything like that. And then there's distraction, isn't there? They may, these are less deliberate influences than other belief systems. They might not work as deliberately, but they simply command more attention. And so the gospel is not considered. Now, not all of those distractions are necessarily bad things. Somebody might have a really devoted family life. They might have a hobby or a career that they very diligently pursue. No error in that. Wouldn't judge them for that at all. But it shuts off the opportunity for considering something outside it. We have to be sensitive to that. People don't want to feel that their life's endeavours are being rubbished. So how could we tackle that? This is what's weighting the pan down. And the dilemma that confronts us, beloved, is I grew up in a generation where there was a basic understanding of God. There was religious education at school. You went to church. I went to Bible class called Crusaders in those days. It's called Urban Saints now, by the way. Um, Am I indebted to my Crusader leaders who persevered with me? I must have made their lives a misery at times. Oh, I was very mischievous. Yeah. Do you know something? The leader of the camp in the Isles of Scilly in 1974 wrote this about me. He said, Peter has an astonishing propensity for one so young for fixing primus stoves. He has yet to rationalise the basis of his belief. (laughs) He was right as well on both counts. These were men and women who led that Bible class in the hope that they would encourage young people to consider more deeply and make a commitment of their own. I am indebted to them. Because part of what I am now is due to their perseverance and sensitivity. Nobody ever bullied me. So, this pan is now heavily weighted. Yes, I got distracted. I'm sorry. I got distracted. Whoa. Um, The pan is very heavily weighted these days on the side of unbelief. All of these things here are so heavily weighted in people's lives. The needle is a long way from the mid-position. There's a lot of work to do to even get someone to contention. Now, if you try and think of a kind of traditional evangelistic meeting where somebody delivers a message and then starts behaving like an auctioneer, getting people to respond and put their hands up, it's a bit like trying to grab the scales and whap it down on one side. The problem is when you let go, it tends to go back the other way. A much better technique is to try and remove the amount of material on the unbelief side and add something positive to the other side, which may, in many people's lives, be pretty much empty. It's not to say they're bad people. It's not to say they're without virtue. Far from it. I meet lots of people in my daily life who are not Christians, but they have personal virtues which I admire and I learn from and I respect. So, fear of the unknown Well, the best way to deal with something unknown is to make it known. This isn't a great revelation, I hope. But if we believe, by definition, we have a relationship with God. We're religious people, by definition also, because we meet in a religious way. But that is of no consequence if we don't have a relationship with God. So we 
have had the privilege of the unknown becoming known. Through Jesus Christ, we have been able to enter into an acquaintance. This is eternal life, Jesus says. The definition, that they may know you. They may know you. It is something precious, and it relieves fear. What's the best way to remove fear in a relationship? It's trust and acquaintance, isn't it? If I know Richard, we can have a frank conversation, and we won't feel threatened by each other. If I know Richard, I can sense things that trouble him, even if he doesn't voice them, and I can bring encouragement to bear in his life. Him to me too. I don't know somebody. It would be presumptive to try and go in at that sort of level, wouldn't it? But it's something that can be shared. And we can allow people to have an examination of that. Because you see, people will make a judgment about our Christianity long before we've spoken to them. Long before we've spoken to them, if we ever speak to them. But they'll make a judgment. So if we've got a lack of knowledge, we need to be in the business of engendering understanding. When the opportunity arises, we can address a lack of knowledge by providing it. It doesn't need to be a private sermon. But much as David Mitchell said in that little clip, we can state the facts. Help people get to a position of understanding. Empathy and support. Well, if somebody's had a bad experience, they've had a bad experience. We should not be trying to belittle that or diminish it or trivialise it. But we can show empathy and support, just like Jesus did. He had time for the simple person. He had time for people who were prepared to listen. He had time for people who weren't so full of themselves that they couldn't give him an opportunity. Richard spoke about the woman at the well, I think, in the first week that you spoke. He had time for that woman. He had time for her foolish words and her distractions. He had time and empathy for her in order not just to have a passing relationship, but to leave her with the seed of eternal life. She knew after that encounter... Who she, whom she had met. Sometimes a sympathetic ear is the biggest help. If we can listen and offer encouragement, we make somebody's situation less bleak. I really want to commend the efforts of those of you who are involved in Street Angels. I was talking with a group of um, three police officers who turned up at the airfield the other day for a cup of tea. Transpired one of them was a pilot, and he said he had to make a statutory inspection of one of the hangars. I doubt that somehow. But uh, here you go. If you don't know exactly what the street angels do, pick up one of the leaflets from the back and have a look. You have a very good reputation with the police. It's a non-judgmental activity where you come alongside people. They're having a poor experience in the street because they're drunk a bit too much. All you're trying to do is make sure they can safely negotiate their way home, sleep it off and live to tell another day. Not judgment. I was talking yesterday to the town clerk of Beverly, also praising that activity, waxing eloquent about the passion play and how good it was. Oh, and she said, would you like to be a town councillor? <laughs> what on earth does that entail? Anyway, empathy, empathy and support. Now then, I spoke about conflict. 
Well, sometimes people are into things that are difficult for us to condone. But we can be accommodating. Richard was asked a difficult question at the Big Questions evening about, you know, what should the church's attitude be towards gay people? Richard answered that very straightforwardly and robustly, which is, God receives us as we are. Judgment is not for us to dispense. We can be accommodating. If people are in situations, whether it's another belief system or a lifestyle, that they might, they might think for themselves we would judge, we can be accommodating in the interests of the relationship. If somebody chooses a different lifestyle than me, that doesn't diminish their value as a person. It doesn't diminish their entitlement to receive my time and attention and support if I can give it. And that's a very... The opposite of accommodation is, is, is prejudice and exclusion, isn't it? We must never be tarred with that brush. That's what Jesus suffered, not what he dispensed. And finally... Distraction. Well, we have to be the people who are offering a greater attraction. Think about it. Our task is to let the substance of our relationship with God become a big attraction, bigger attraction, so that other things, good though they may be, will um, fall into a different place. Now, I've not taken a theological or a psychological approach to this. I'm just trying to stimulate your thinking <coughs> so that we get ourselves in a better place to try and... Use the opportunities. Now, if you'd like to turn to 1 Peter, I'm going to read you one of my favourite verses in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. You'll find it uh, after Hebrews and James. And this is what this passage says, picking up at 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. That was very precious to me earlier this week. <laughs> you know, a verse that suddenly lights up and you think, yes. Here's the key. But in your hearts, set Christ apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. The passage goes on to say, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Be prepared to answer everyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope that you have. Yes? Now, I'm struck, by the way, that Jesus... He not only had people flock to hear him speak, he also made connections with people's lives. Spoken about the woman at the well, didn't just lecture her, give her a short sermon, straighten her out, show how clever he was by unravelling her life and straightening out her attempt to present it the way she wanted. No, he went to the core of the issue and said, I'm offering you life. Not judging you about your past, I'm offering you life. You're going to take it. You're going to accept me at face value. Or are you going to continue in your distracted ways? He often drew the criticism of the establishment because he was perceived to mix with sinners. But he knew that men and women, he knew that for men and women to trust their lives to him, he needed to display trust in them. And this is the thing I find so engaging. Jesus Showed trust in those around him. He showed trust in my namesake, Peter, knowing that he'd blow hot and cold. 
he showed trust in Judas, knowing that he would eventually betray him. God exercises the trust first and seeks a response from us. Why he does that? Well, I can't explain. But he seeks us out. He seeks us out still. But he didn't do it with an ulterior motive. He simply loved people. He was like a shepherd trying to gather an alienated flock and bring them back into a place of safety and security. This is what endears me so much. This is the Jesus whom I worship. This is the Jesus whom I love. This is the Jesus over the last 37 years I have come to know better and better. So, here's a thought for you. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hold another comedy night here. I've attended them all, and they've been very good. They're well organised, and they're thoroughly enjoyable. I've brought, and also for that matter, made friends on those evenings. People who've come along that I didn't know. They are also not well attended. Now, if you said to me, for the price of a ticket or two for an event like that, you can move a bit of mass from the side of unbelief to the side of belief in a person's life. I'd be wanting to gather all the funds I could and buy all the tickets I could and go about that process. The comedy evening is not an evangelistic occasion. The gospel is not going to be presented. So why am I saying all of this to you? Because those whom you invite and you bring along and enjoy the evening, you establish trust and a closer bond. It's it's not a great mystery. People will trust you and I first. And then some way down the road, they may consider trusting God. It's our job to help that process. It's been said that people need multiple encounters with the gospel to make a decision. I've heard a figure of seven quoted, yes? At least seven encounters. There needs to be quite a bit of moving of mass around in those scales. So people reach a position where they can make a decision. Only they can make that decision, mind you. But our job is to try and facilitate it. I'm going to bring some new friends. I've got my tickets already. People I've never bought a BCC function before. They're excited about it. They've reserved the evening in their diary because I gave them good notice. I wouldn't bring them to a big questions evening just yet. But in the future, I would. So this evening is a step in that direction. The lady's one of my students. And she's doing very, very well. I'm hugely impressed with her performance. But that requires some vulnerability on her part. You know, because she's trying to learn to fly an aeroplane. That's not the easiest thing in the world. It requires some sensitivity on mine. And I'm impressed with her her endeavour and her determination and everything. How about this? 
Angie's carried this vision for some time now, and it's come to fruition. Workshops tackling real-life issues in a sound, practical way, but with a gospel emphasis sitting in the background. Is that correct? Yeah? Have a look at the list of topics. There's documents at the back. Maybe think about inviting somebody for whom you think they're discrete events on a monthly basis. If there's a topic there that's on uh, March of next year, I will invite somebody to that because I know it's relevant for them. And I know they will come. It's a step in the right direction. It's not us trying to say to people, we want you in the club. Somehow our salvation is enhanced if you tick in the, you tick in the box. No. Our position is more like the health worker who's come back from Ebola, been cured of that condition, and now wants to go back there to continue to serve people. We've found the cure for the human condition. We found the means by which we can be reacquainted with God. We found the means to eternal life, which starts right here in a relationship with him. That is far too good to jealously guard to ourselves. What people do with the opportunity is their decision. But we must be those who facilitate their opportunity to make it. Now, in the early part of this message, I spoke about the challenge of vulnerability. So next week, we're going to spend part of our time together in a workshop on the theme of making connections. If you'd just like to distribute that document for me, please, Christine. I'd like you to take this thing I'm going to give you now home and consider it. And to be frank with you, I'd like it even more if you brought it back with you next week. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to be a little bit lonely here. And I'm going to explain to you what I'd like you to do with it. Just whilst that's going around, Debbie and I accepted an invitation last night to somebody's housewarming party. It was an interesting occasion. There was a lady there who seemed to have got the proportions of her mixer and her, and her gin back to front. <laughs> she was dressed like Tina Turner, quite impressively, I might say. And we had a gloriously disconnected conversation where I was talking about the Isles of Scilly and she was talking about the Isle of Skye and we just couldn't seem to converge that we weren't talking about the same place. But why am I telling you this? Because at one stage in the evening, I allowed myself to be drawn into a game called Dropping Bombs. Bombs away even. Right, Debbie has corrected me. What this game entails is you clasp a two-pea piece between your buttocks and your partner guides you so you may release the coin into a cup. We came last. (laughs) Okay? And I have to say to you, there is a limit to a man's endurance. You can only clench for so long. Why am I sharing this with you? Because if you're invited into somebody's social circle, if you're invited into their environment and you participate in some innocent fun, which is what they, which is what they do, you establish a connection. I'll make a fool of myself. Some might say I do it naturally. I'll make a fool of myself if it fosters that connection. I don't want to be branded as somebody who is aloof and that's beneath them and, oh, he doesn't come because that's the beneath them. You know, I didn't get, I didn't have too much to drink. Just had one drink and then had a cup of tea. 
<laughs> they even provided tea bags for it. Well, that's sweet. The host said, if you and Debbie would like a cup of tea, there's the kettle. Wasn't that sweet? Sometimes the world can be less judgmental than we are. Why am I sharing that? It's just a, a, a trivial little example of an opportunity to be invited into somebody's space and have a bit of fun and build a connection. Everybody in that circle knows where I stand. They all do. So, you have in front of you a little worksheet, and I want to help you develop your testimony. We heard something earlier about the power of testimony, and that's true. It might be the means by which you came to a relationship with God. It might, more like, might possibly be a more recent life event that you became aware of his presence and your, as his involvement in a situation of yours. What I'd like you to do is to take away this document, and if you flip it over to the other side, you'll find there are four boxes. And what I'd like you to do is, in the, in the narrow line at the top, write down an event. And then underneath, just a few words. You can either do it during the week or you can do it when we come together next week. A few words that sort of describe why that situation was significant. And then we'll pull that together in a workshop context. Please, don't worry. Nobody's going to drag you to the front for some toe-curling piece of disclosure. There'll be opportunity to share things if you wish. There will be no coercion. But the opportunity is to help you prepare. It says, Peter says, be prepared. It behoves us to do that. We can't rehearse every situation, but we can, we can reduce the angles. So that brings me to a close for this morning. And I'm going to pray. And I'd like you to take that sheet away with you and have a think about that before we meet next week. We thank you, Father, that you, you have seen fit to choose us, to seek us out, and to share with us the most precious thing we could ever receive. You have shared with us the secret of eternal life and introduced, reintroduced us to yourself through your Son. Words seem insufficient, but we are glad and we are thankful. You are everything to us. And help us in our endeavours. Help us to draw others closer to you. Amen.